He has nine years of experience as an investigator for that unit. Um, prior to that, he was employed at the Newport Police Department, where he was a police supervisor and administrator. He also has experience in the United States Army, military police, and as a military police investigator. Currently, he conducts investigations regarding abuse, neglect, and financial exploitation of individuals residing in health care facilities. And he's a liaison with various state agencies and state boards, such as Health and Human Services and the New Hampshire Board of Nursing. So please help me welcome Jim. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much. I know the last speaker today, uh, and, and I'm going to be mindful of that, so feel free to relax a little bit in the room. Um, I was in Orlando yesterday, and it was very similar to here. It was 83 there, and, and sunny, and it was slightly different here. But uh, you know, all joking aside, actually, there are some similarities to Florida and New Hampshire. Um, you know, when I was thinking about it yesterday while I was traveling back, and that is that there's drug-seeking behavior in both states. Uh, you know, you have a small percentage of population um, in the healthcare field that are drug-seeking individuals, and, and those are some of the people that I uh, investigate. And, and again, I reiterate that in New Hampshire, it's a small percentage of the population, but we are mindful of, of drug diversion that occurs in New Hampshire, and, uh, and it, does, it does occur. My office does prosecute a number of these cases, and I thought it would be interesting to not only talk about drug diversion for the time that I have, but also to talk about where we've been in 2013, where we hope to go in 2014 a little bit. Um, but feel free to ask me questions as I go along because, you know, we are going to be talking about a topic here that some people are mindful of and some people are, are aware of, but, but there are nuances that my office is, is encountering and there are differences that I'm going to talk about which you may not think about a lot in drug diversion. So we'll just start with uh, the statute. There is a statute, uh, a law in New Hampshire, and, and it's called Abuse of Facility Patient. My office uh, uses this law sometimes when we charge individuals for criminal conduct regarding drug diversion. And uh, you could read, for the people that are in the back of the room, I, uh, I'll read that. It says that a facility licensee administrator or employee shall not willfully physically or mentally abuse, mistreat, or harmfully neglect or deprive a patient. The Attorney General shall be responsible for the investigation and prosecution of patient abuse or neglect in any healthcare facility, whether licensed or unlicensed. So this statute governs our authority to investigate cases that occur in healthcare facilities uh, in New Hampshire. And that may include nursing homes, it may include hospitals or other settings. There is a duty to report, and I know administrators and people in the healthcare setting are aware that there's a duty to report in New Hampshire that requires the reporting of physical abuse, neglect, or financial exploitation, uh, and that failure to report is a misdemeanor. You know, there's very few crimes in New Hampshire that you require to report. Uh, elder abuse is one of them. Uh, child abuse is another one. Uh, homicide is, is a crime that needs to be reported in New Hampshire. and. Uh, so there are a number of cases that the average citizen has to report. There are also cases that citizens don't have to report. If their house is broken into, let's say, they don't have to report that type of crime. But a child abuse, we all know about child abuse and uh, that those are reported. I think elder abuse, we, we lagged a little bit over some period of time, but I think we're, we're on our way. 
and a lot of facilities are reporting uh, drug diversion to our office. So um, I wanted to first talk a little bit about, uh, and I skipped that slide, but there's an immunity from liability, and I think facilities would like to be aware of this fact that any person or agency other than an alleged perpetrator participating in good faith in making a report um, is neglect, uh, in neglect or exploitation shall have immunity from any liability. So an administrator, a facility, a director of nursing, uh, a facility itself taking upon itself to report, there is a protection in the law that prevents uh, you from being sued by the individual that you're accusing. Uh, when you have a suspicion that somebody's done something and you make a report to our office, let's say, or to BEAS, uh, you are protected. And the statute realizes that you want some and need some protections. So if you are acting in good faith and you make a report and you say, we've had something occur, we've had a diversion occur, we believe that this person is involved, uh, and we conduct an investigation, you are protected in the statute for any repercussion that that person may seek upon you. One of the questions that we hear a lot is, do we notify law enforcement? Do we not notify law enforcement? This may be a facility or a hospital wanting to, you know, debating, should we do this? Should we not do that? Uh, we've notified BEAS, the Ombudsman's Office, they're aware of it. Uh, now do we need to notify police? Well, it, it depends what your, first of all, what your company's practice and policy is. But there is an exception in HIPAA for notifying. Um, if a crime occurs on your prem premises, any crime that occurred at a facility can be reported to law enforcement by any person, even though private pa uh, patient information will be divulged. The hospital can volunteer this information. They do not need to wait for a request from law enforcement. So there's an exception. HIPAA was never intended that somebody could come on your premises uh, with, you know, with a firearm, let's say, and that you not be able to communicate that. We all expect fully that we need to be able to communicate when, when crimes occur. Patient abuse is a crime. So you should and need to uh, be able to report that openly and freely with law enforcement. My office, uh, we are a law enforcement entity. We're also a healthcare oversight group. And there exists with uh, healthcare facilities, they signed what's called a provider agreement. There's a healthcare provider agreement that states in part that we agree to accept federal funding, Medicaid, Medicare funding, uh, and in so doing, we agree to share information with the Medicaid fraud unit in each state in the country um, in order to facilitate any investigation that's necessary. Basically, it governs our office with the same authority that if Health and Human Services came on site and was doing a survey, let's say, and they came on site and they said, we want to see the uh, information pertaining to these patients, you would provide it. It's the same with our office, that this provider agreement allows our office the same authority uh, as you would, say, the Health and Human Services if they were to come on site. And so every state in the country has a um, Medicaid fraud control unit and they are entitled to uh, access these records, investigate these types of crimes as they occur around the country. That doesn't mean we're the sole entity that can investigate these. And that's why I had the slide up before about report to law enforcement, because some facilities believe we're going to report to local law enforcement. And we don't prohibit 
say no, you shouldn't report to, report to local law enforcement. One thing that we're saying is we can bring an expertise to the table. We, we've investigated these cases, we prosecute these cases, and we have uh, ultimate authority on the statute to investigate these cases. So if local law enforcement comes on board, we're, we're probably going to hear about it, we're probably going to contact them, and we may assume authority to investigate uh, because our office uh, isn't, is supposed to be investigating these cases. So let's talk about, um, we've had a number of re reports and convictions of drug diversion in our office. In fact, we've tripled uh, these types of cases in the last year. I'm not saying that drug diversion is on the increase. I'm not trying to show something factual to you. What I am saying is that reports to our office have tripled in the last year. Uh, but we have also had the ability to increase our attorney and our investigative staff. And, and so that's a report that I could say for what's going on in, in 2013. We're much busier. Uh, we have a lot of these cases. A lot of them are um, rather complicated cases. They're more, I'm not going to say the, the, the crime is more sophisticated than before, but some of them are very difficult cases involving a lot of uh, documentation. And we are in the middle of handling a number of investigations at this time that I'd like to be able to speak more on, but I can't. But just suffice it to say that these cases are uh, much more going on this past year than in previous years. So in 2014, what we plan on doing is much like we were doing in 2013. One of the things that we'd like to do is our referral process. Um, we review these cases for what I would say is our nexus. When we get a call from an administrator or we get a referral from the Ombudsman's office or we hear something from uh, Bureau of Elderly and Adult Services, we need to evaluate it to see whether it fits our criteria. My unit is three-quarters federally funded. So um, we are, have guidelines for both New Hampshire standards and for federal standards about what we can do for a case. One of our key elements to investigate these types of cases is that we have to show that there's patient abuse, some type of patient harm. If there's a diversion or a theft from stock, let's say, or it's going to be product that's going to be a waste, and somebody is diverting from waste. Those are not types of cases that we would investigate. We need to specifically only investigate cases involving patient abuse, uh, fentanyl patch being removed from a, from a resident at a nursing home, or uh, morphine being taken from uh, a patient at a hospital, something specific uh, regarding patient abuse itself. The other, the other thing that we're doing uh, this year and plan on doing in the future is we have what I call the investigative process uh, where the investigator will start to look at the case and determine where it's going, what our projection is for what will happen in the end of the investigation. And then we also have attorneys who are, are actively involved in the case as well. So the attorneys are evaluating the cases as we proceed with the investigation. So we get the initial referral, and the initial referral can come from, like I said, the Ombudsman's Office, elderly and adult, but it also could come from the facility. Many cases are referred directly from the facility. I get calls from the director of nursing or from the administrator, uh, and we begin our investigation right then and there, as soon as we hear about this from, from the facility or from the hospital itself. So we can investigate a case directly 
upon being reported from the facility, and it's also uh, can get a, a more of a quick response. If we hear about the matter directly from you, we can also then discuss it with you to find out what's the dynamics, how did this all come about, is the employee still working there, has the employee been terminated, what admissions, if any, have been made, and what occurred. So we can make those evaluations. The investigator talks about it to the attorney, and between us and also with you, meaning the facility, we start developing a plan to proceed. And that's why number four is we maintain dialogue with the facility and the Board of Nursing. Uh, many times we're investigating these cases, and I'll call the Director of Nursing or I'll call the Administrator and I'll say, here's where we're at, here's what we're planning on doing, we'd like to do this, we'd like to do that, um, we'd like to interview certain employees maybe, uh, or we are looking for a record or something to support our case. We're pretty much just keeping them in the loop about what's going on in the investigation and also uh, very mindful that these entities are concerned when it goes out of your hands. Uh, what are we going to do with it? And it, it's, we want to be able to work with you on such a case, realizing that it's, it's very concerning for you as well. So we try and maintain the dialogue with you and the Board of Nursing. Um, we work directly with the Board of Nursing on such matters as well. I've testified in a number of administrative disciplinary hearings at the Board. There's a, uh, an attorney and investigator out of my office that work with the Board of Nursing. So we are mindful of those things. Sometimes there's, when we see a case where the employee has left your employment as seeking work in the field, they may determine that the best course of action is to seek an emergency suspension order um, and, and take that action against the individual to stop them from seeking work in the healthcare field. We've seen that happen on a number of occasions. They leave one employer, they jump to another employer. Um, so we are trying to work closely with them and tend to do so in the future. It's a federal exclusion database. Hopefully everyone is familiar with this, but uh, the Office of Inspector General, HHS, uh, has a exclusion database. I know people don't have the PowerPoint in front of them, may not be able to read this website, but there is a PowerPoint that I've made available uh, to Laura so that there's a, an ability that you could have to get it. This website will tell you the, uh, if you have employees that you want to identify in the future if they've been excluded from working in the healthcare field. When we prosecute, uh, let's say, a nurse, um, they, we submit paperwork to the federal government, which the federal government will then determine how long there's going to be a prohibition on that nurse's license from working in the healthcare field. It could be up to, it could be three years, it could be five years from working in the healthcare field depending upon the allegation and the severity of the allegation. Uh, this website will list uh, individuals and it, the last time I looked when it was listed by state, they no longer listed by state, there was approximately 300 people in New Hampshire that are on this website. So it's important to check your, this website uh, the federal government actually mandates employers of, that are in the healthcare field during their background when they're hiring somebody, they are mandated to check this website to verify that this person is not uh, excluded within the healthcare field. They could have been prosecuted in California. We've had cases where the nurse was prosecuted in California and uh, went to 
was lost her license in California, went to Massachusetts, lost her license in Massachusetts, ended up in New Hampshire, and worked in the healthcare field in New Hampshire. Uh, we have also sought, facilities have had to pay money back to the federal government for hiring individuals that have worked, that are on the exclusion list. Uh, so if there's a nurse that's on the exclusion list that is working at a facility and they um, are excluded, uh, the federal government can seek a reimbursement for a significant amount of, of wages for that individual because they shouldn't be working at a facility if they're currently on the exclusion database. So in the future, I would recommend, if you're not familiar with it, that you check this database to see if some of your employees are on it. And some facilities, some facilities have a practice of going back and rechecking it over time uh, as an update to their, to their process. So it's pretty quick, it's pretty easy to do, and you could, you, uh, I, was on it, I was on it last week and checked to make sure my sister-in-law is still a nurse. <laughs> She's a nurse down in Florida, I'm trying to see what I can do about that. Um, but anyway, it's easy access to it, and this, this website, uh, I checked this link to make sure it was, it was good. So you should be able to get to it and check. So one thing I was thinking about when I was preparing for this, and, and if there's been people that have heard my talk before, I've tried to change it a little bit, but it's hard to change a topic like drug diversion. I mean, I have to talk about drugs and how people divert, so it's, it, it's, I can't deviate too much. But one thing I found interesting is that drug diversion, I've been doing this for about nine and a half years in, in my office, and I think it's a little different than what it once was. Um, there are some things that are different about drug diversion. It's not the typical person took fentanyl patch off of a patient or resident, and therefore it's drug diversion. There are different ways uh, that these types of crimes can happen. And it could be, well, they only gave me one pill and I was supposed to get two pills, or they gave me too, too much medication. And, and you know, that caused a problem, and they purposely did something that caused a problem. There's, there's a lot more different ways that drug diversion occurs. And, and even the fentanyl patch issue, for people that have thought about this, I've had facilities say, well, you know, the patch was off the person for four hours, but we caught it during the next, the next shift. When they went to do the two-person check, we noticed the patch was missing. Therefore, we put a new patch on, and there was no, there's no uh, patient abuse, there's no harm. Uh, well, did you identify that something occurred with the patch? Yeah, we know that uh, a nurse took it, but um, there's, no, there's no patient harm. You don't need to be here. There's no patient harm. Uh, you know, we would, we would dispute that. We would say that if somebody is not a, receives their medication, even though it's a transdermal patch and, and it's, it's slow uh, admission to the resident over a period of 72 hours, we're aware of that, but it's still off the person. They're entitled to that medication during that whole period of time that the doctors determined that that's what they should be receiving. And we would, we would say, you know, we need to get involved in a case like that if it's off of a person, and unless it's an accident, falls off a person uh, accidentally, that's one thing. But if it's clear diversion, if this matter happened and somebody took this patch, these are cases we need to investigate because sometimes that person goes to another place, the conduct follows that person. So, 
you need to think a little bit when you have these types of problems happen and the fear of a facility, as I said before, is it goes out of their hands about what's going to happen in the future. We try and keep you uh, informed about where we're going to go with this. All right, we're planning on, we're going to interview the nurse that you terminated. We're going to interview her tomorrow. We're interviewing her at the local police department or we're going to do it at our office. We try and let you know, give you a heads up about what's going to happen. So some of the things that I've heard from facilities in the past when we've asked about drug diversion is a lot of times they feel, I can't believe someone on my own staff did this. It's like my family, it's like I've known these people for years. Um, I, I can't believe this happened to us. And, and how do I know a diversion occurred? Um, how do I know who may have done it? What should I do as a director of nursing or as an administrator? So there's a lot of types of ways diversion happens, as we talked about. Derogesic patches can be found not on the patient. Um, we've had nurses have admitted that they've sucked or chewed on the patch, um, left it behind to prevent the detection of diversion. I had a nurse that I interviewed um, that said she was driving, she took it, put it in her mouth, it was chewing it like chewing gum, left the facility, drove down the highway, was chewing it, and then spit it out the window. So um, there's a lot of ways that these things can happen. Sometimes they'll try and consume the narcotic while they're, filled, they're still at work, which is typically what I see is that the diversion is occurring while they're still working rather than taking it with them. Uh, but there's also times when we're trying, we're discussing here specifically about how to identify um, diversion, inaccurate narcotic count, and uh, sometimes the resident complaint. We all know that most of the time these the residents are not uh, competent at uh, the point sometimes when these diversions occur, but we've also had cases where the resident is very competent. And, uh, you know, I'll go in and I'll talk to the resident if I can and, and get their side of the story about what happened if I need to. And um, many times we don't have the ability to do that. That doesn't mean we can't prosecute a case. There's many times with domestic violence where we have what's called a victimless prosecution. The police department can still prosecute a spouse for battery when the other spouse doesn't want to uh, communicate to law enforcement. So it still can happen, even though the victim is uncommunicative or non-communicative, we can still prosecute such a case or investigate a case anyway. We've had nurses that have forged other nurses' initials on MARs. Uh, these are all things to think about topics of, of identifying diversion. Let's say as an administrator or director of nursing, you suspect something's going on. You can look at MARs, you can look for suspicious initials, you could look for forged names, you could look for, um, I always think one of the key things to identify is if the person's an excessive waster uh, or excessive PRN, as opposed to the opposite shift that, that nurse is working. So you have a nurse who works 3 to 11 shift, um, is off two days a week, let's say. The person that works opposite them, they're three times less PRN than the other nurse. We also realize that everybody has their own pain assessment that they identify and that they utilize. So we, you know, we're not going to ever prosecute a case where we're uh, contesting the legitimacy of, as far as an expert, 
calling the shot, what should be administered, what shouldn't be administered, or saying to a doctor, how come you prescribed um, 40 micrograms when 30 micrograms of fentanyl is the appropriate amount? We just, we're not going to do a case like that. We, we're relying on the expert to make those determinations, but we look for indicators of diversion. Some of the indicators are excessive PRN or excessive wasting. And then we make the determination if the case is going to meet our criteria to investigate. There's possible outcomes of these types of cases. The case could be unfounded. It could be a type of case that uh, we're not going to be able to, uh, doesn't have prosecutorial merit. And the types of charges that we may come up with, it could be an illegal possession of a narcotic. It could be abusive facility patient, as we talked about. There's consequences could be, could range from uh, jail. Um, it could also be uh, probation. It could be drug re rehab program. There are a number of, of um, sentencing guidelines that we could utilize in our office that can make a decision about how far we proceed with something like this. Um, and I'm sure if you've seen press releases from our office, you realize that uh, one thing we do take seriously is if there's patient abuse, if a resident or a patient has been harmed or suffered in any way, our office is going to seek jail time on that type of consequence. So you, you know right off the bat if there's patient abuse or harm that we're going to seriously consider the possibility of some type of, of jail sentence for that individual. I wanted to leave time open so that we could just open it to discussion for people. Yes? So um, can, you, can you talk about the RSA that is involved in people seeking um, opioids from a f uh, doctor's office under false pretenses, you know, saying yep. that they're not getting them elsewhere? Or, um, and also, what would be involved in diversion? And that would be not, not a cognitively impaired person we're just talking about someone who walks in and tells you a story that's not true and there's some sort of RSA about that and tell me what the process is because I've been called before by some pharmacist who works in Concord to notify me that you know somebody came in and, and I just don't know how that process there is happens. a there is a doctor shopping uh, statute what, what's referred to as doctor shopping so and I'm glad you mentioned that because often in our investigations when we're looking, let's say, at a, at a nurse who we suspect of diverting, uh, we have the ability to look at Medicaid billing. Um, and so I could see if that person's on Medicaid, I could see what they're up, obtaining for, for <coughs> prescriptions. And uh, we can also go to pharmacies and request patient profile information. There's a statute that allows law enforcement during an ongoing investigation to request from a pharmacy prescription profile information. And so very frequently I'll go to a pharmacy and I'll ask for patient profile information on our suspect. And it may show that this individual is seeking oxycodone from multiple providers or other narcotics from multiple providers. So there is a statute governing uh, doctor shopping. Our office does not prosecute those types of cases because we're not uh, uh, allowed to under, under our federal and state guidelines, but there, it is a crime to do that. And what it is a crime to do is to, to go to seek uh, a prescription from one doctor and then go to another doctor 
for the same type of pain for a similar prescription for a same. T so I can't go to one doctor and complain about my shoulder hurts because I was in an accident and get a prescription for oxycodone, let's say, and then go to another doctor uh, for the same pain during the same period of time and get a prescription that overlaps that first prescription. That's a felony to do that. And when we hear about those cases, we do make referral to, to local law enforcement of that type of conduct. Uh, there is, state police does have a um, um, investigative branch that used to investigate uh, pharmacy uh, matters like that. I'm not sure if they're still active, but uh, local law enforcement can investigate those and make proper referrals. But we also, we make referrals to local law enforcement when we hear about or identify such conduct. Uh, we've seen, I've seen dozens of doctors associated with one patient uh, going to eight or 10 or 12 different pharmacies um, seeking prescriptions for, for multiple different pharmacies while they're on Medicaid. So, you know, they, Medicaid does have what's called a lock-in program where they try and identify people that are obtaining multiple prescriptions from multiple pharmacies, from multiple doctors, but realizing some people have some significant healthcare problems and they may be going to multiple providers and they may be going to multiple pharmacies because they may be going to one right outside their doctor's office, they may be going to another outside where they live. But Medicaid has a, has a lockdown where they won't allow more than a certain amount of pharmacies for you to visit with a certain amount of doctors and a certain type amount of medication uh, prescriptions that you're obtaining over a period of time. Uh, and if you do that, you can enter what's called this lock-in program where you're really regimented to go to one pharmacy. And so a lot of these people that are doctor shoppers will seek multiple pharmacies so that they could um, try and run under the radar of their, with their prescriptions going to multiple doctors. Uh, but it is a felony, it is something that's investigated and prosecuted, and we usually try and walk uh, agencies through it so that they know where to go with it. Was there an addition, additional part of that that I didn't cover? Yeah, it's under 318, it's under 318B, it's, it's RSA 318B2 is, is the statute that governs it, um, but there's a subsection to that RSA. Protection for the provider to be able to talk to the investigator about that call, Yes, there's a protection for the provider to be able to talk to law enforcement about that again. It's a, it's a possible crime that has occurred on the premises of the pharmacy if they suspect that somebody is seeking uh, or has passed a, f a false script or is seeking additional, uh, some additional medication that they shouldn't be getting. Uh, that there's a, the statute that I mentioned in my presentation, they are safeguarded against, you know, it's, it's essentially like a whistleblower. You have certain protections you're allowed to bring to law enforcement's attention. Uh, even though you're giving patient information, you're allowed to do so. There was a question in the back? In the back. With that last topic, um, you mentioned that there's a Medicaid restriction on pharmacies going from pharmacy to pharmacy. Um, does that also cover private insurance too? I don't know of a lock-in program for private insurance. Uh, I believe, I'm not sure if anyone talked about the prescription monitoring program. Yes. 
Okay, so um, that will hopefully tighten up some of the drug-seeking behavior for individuals. Um, and I've been a proponent of the prescription monitoring program for many years and in, in several years at least in our office, um, approximately eight years, that I thought it was a, it was a good thing for us to consider. Um, so I'm glad to see that that's going into effect. And, you know, hopefully that will help. What other private healthcare uh, agencies do, I'm not sure whether it's any more restrictive uh, than the Medicaid program. I've never heard of any that are more restrictive than that or a lock-in program. When is the, the um, prescription drug monitoring program in New Hampshire effective? I don't know a date at this point. Uh, I'm reluctant to say a date. <laughs> Other thoughts that people have? Uh, you know, my office takes these cases quite seriously. I would hope that people should feel free to contact me, whether it's by phone or by email, if they have comments or questions, uh, whether it's about drug diversion or other similar topics and I could uh, offer you some guidance. I get calls from facilities, and we could at least have a discussion uh, via phone and, um, and take it from there. One last question? Yes? Well, there's gonna be one more, but go ahead, go ahead. You mentioned repeatedly nurses um, as far as drug diversion, and I was wondering the percentage of what uh, you might find like LNAs or, or physicians yep. to. Um, LNAs, you know, it's typically what they could get access to. So typically with an LNA, we'd be looking at fentanyl patches. Um, so depending upon what the drug is, you know, more, more referrals to us have probably been that we've identified the criminal conduct. We've probably prosecuted more LNAs than other license levels. Um, and certainly, we haven't had very many uh, cases where we've had to prosecute a physician uh, for such conduct. Um, but anything's, anything can happen. Yes? If a family member notices or is suspecting uh, that their family, their loved one is not receiving the proper medication or is it well, should they contact your agency or the, uh, the facility? I think uh, whether they take the step first of talking to the facility is up to them, plus the ombudsman's office would be a, a good first stop. We have a good liaison with the ombudsman's office where we hear about these matters when it rises to the level that diversion is then suspected. Uh, my mother is in a facility, and I talked to the administrator because we were told that, um, that my mother was receiving uh, sleeping pills. And as it turned out, the person that had told me that they were receiving sleeping uh, medication was misspoke, had misspoken, where she wasn't receiving. And so it was able to be handled right at the administrator's level rather than needing to go further. So I think each case has its own uh, merit. And if it's something extremely serious, um, not that all matters like that aren't serious, but if, it, if the conduct is such that it's clearly identified in the get-go that it's criminal conduct, the facility should be taking proper action. But I also field questions from family members as well. Well, thank you very much for your attention.